That's part of what we're going to think about this morning. Just how much God loves us. But it's not where we're going to start. Many of you are old enough to remember the old Dove soap commercials. Do you remember those, some of you? They always involved uh, a, a, very, a very sort of just naturally beautiful, young, fresh-faced, married woman. And we, we got to see her, you know, washing her face, and we got to see her husband just sort of delighting in her natural beauty. And, uh, and, and, and then the, the, the tagline, the slogan would come up, right? Dove soap, 99.9% pure. I think they actually still use it. I, I'm not, I don't buy Dove soap. But I, I think that they actually still maybe even use that tagline, and you understand why, right? It, it works. I, I think, you know, they say sex sells. I think that, in fact, that, that Dove series of commercials may be the only example of, of using sexual purity. You know, this young married couple using sexual purity to try to sell something. But then that, that was what they were all about. 99.9% pure. Because Dove understood what, what, what many people understand, right? We, we care about purity, at least in some contexts. Right? When, when, it, when it comes to our water, we want purity. When it, when it comes to the ingredients in our food or our skincare products, we want purity. It's, it's, it's a big deal. It is a positive trait. These days, though, not so much when it comes to people, right? Unadulterated water, big thumbs up. Pure people. Yeah, that doesn't ring so well in our culture anymore, does it? It sounds kind of self-righteous to claim to be a pure person. It sounds kind of sanctimonious. There is another way that we're very comfortable, though, using the language of purity. Uh, we, we use it when we talk about breeding animals, right? We're talking about a purebred dog, uh, a, a purebred horse. We're even actually willing to pay extra money to get a purebred animal of some kind. Ooh, but at that point, we're even less comfortable using that language, in that way, and, and apply it to people, right? The atrocities of World War II, the, the so-called racial purity laws of the Old South or even some Asian nations today. Uh, even that, that theme, if you read the Harry Potter series, you know, that whole theme of the purebloods, right? All of that serves to remind us of the evils that we tend to perpetrate against each other when purity of bloodline or purity of ethnicity is allowed to trump our common humanity. Now, I give these two examples because I, I want you to feel the, the conflicted attitude that we bring to the language of purity. Good in some places, really bad in others. And this brings us to Christianity. This spring, we're considering the question of, of authentic, or you might even say pure, Christianity, and we're using John's first letter, which was written towards the end of the first century. And, and in this letter, John is responding to, to false teachers 
False teachers who claim, actually they kind of claim different things. Some of them were saying that, well, we don't sin anymore. And others of them were saying, well, well, no, no, I mean, we sin, but sin doesn't matter. And in our passage this morning, John makes, in response to that, he makes not one, but two claims that I think are very uncomfortable to our modern ears. Because what John says is that true Christians, true Christians are pure. Okay, well, that, that right there begins to make us feel uncomfortable. <laughs> but then it gets worse. To make the idea even more difficult, he says, we're pure because we have been born of the right lineage. We have, as it were, the right bloodline. So is Christianity both sanctimonious and racist? I think that's the way the language of purity often strikes people when they come to what John has to say this morning. And this is what we're going to look at. Turn with me to uh, 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. If you're not used to uh, using a Bible, we've provided some. You can find this on page 1,900, 1,900. 1 John chapter 2, the big numbers on the pages are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. We're going we're gonna, to uh, start with verse 28, and I'm going to read until... Uh, Verse 10 of chapter 3. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, well, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, That is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. All right, in the previous chapters, John, if you've been, if you've been following along this series, John has laid out three tests or three marks of authentic Christianity and therefore the authentic Christian. He's laid out the moral test or the mark of obedience. He's laid out the social test, the the, the mark of love for one another. And and he's laid out the doctrinal test, the, the mark of belief in Jesus as the Christ. 
Now, with our passage this morning, John is going to take up those three tests that he's already laid out, and he's going to go through them a second time. So, up until this point in the series, you know, if you've been following along, everything's kind of new. Starting this week to the very end of the series, John is going to review what he's already said. And then he's going to review it again. We're going to work through these, these three marks three times. But he, but he picks up this, this mark of obedience now for a second time. Now, back, back in chapter 2, the case for obedience was built on the nature of love. He said, to, to love Christ is to obey Christ. It's how we demonstrate our love for Jesus. And so you can't say you love him and not obey him at the same time. But but this time around, when he takes up this mark of obedience again, John makes the case for obedience, not from the nature of our love for Jesus Christ, but rather on the nature of God himself. You see that there in verse 29. If you know that he, that is God, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. The principle that John lays out in these verses is simple and it is clear. Children resemble their parents. Like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. That's really the principle. Because God is righteous, his authentic children will be righteous as well. And and if I had to kind of sum up This passage in one sentence, that that would really be the summary. People who have been genuinely born of God will be pure, just as God is pure. People who are genuinely born of God will be pure, just as God is pure. Like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. Children resemble the parents. That's what he's getting at here. Now, he develops the idea in three simple steps. And so if you take notes, I'm I'm going to give you the outline here. He he develops this idea in these three simple steps, and it basically goes like this. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 28, to, to chapter 3, verse 3. If you know where you're going, if you know where you're going, that's point one. Point two, and you know where you've been, that's verses four to eight there in chapter three, verses four to eight. You know where you've been then you know who you are. Then you know who you are. That's verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3. If you know where you're going and you know where you've been, then you know who you are. Let's unpack that. So first, if you know where you're going. If you know where you're going, John says, then you'll get ready. You'll get ready. Look again, verse 28. Of chapter 2. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. John picks up 
in, in verse 28, really where he left off in the previous verses, encouraging Christians to remain, to remain in Christ. But, but whereas in the previous verses, he was looking back at other things that had already happened, this time he tells us to remain in Christ because he's looking forward. He, he's, he's anticipating the second coming of Jesus Christ, what he calls his appearing, the parousia at the end of the age. He knows that when Christ shows up for the second time, there are only going to be two responses to Jesus. Everyone's going to see him, and everybody's going to respond one of two ways, either with bold confidence, woohoo, he's here. I have been looking forward to this. I am so excited to see him. Or with shrinking shame. John will write in the book of Revelation that, that men and women will, 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 will want to hide in the caves. They'll want rocks to fall on them and cover them. So great will the desire be to hide from the gaze of Jesus. These are the only two responses on that last day. And John wants Christians to be confident on that day. And, and basically, what, what he tells them is, look, confidence on that day springs from obedience today. Confidence on that day springs from, it's grounded in your, your experience of obedience today. But, but he doesn't make that point in kind of a finger-wagging, scolding, you know, y'all behave now or you're going to get in trouble when, when, when Jesus comes back, you know, that's kind of like what the babysitter says to the, to the kids, right? Y'all behave or you're going to catch it when your parents get back. No, that's, that's not what John is saying. No, what, what, what John is actually calling us to is this, this excited, joyful, spontaneous obedience that springs from anticipation of where we're going. You, you hear it there in chapter 3, verse 1. John actually kind of breaks out into praise. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us? that we should be called the children of God. Of course, by nature, we're anything but the children of God. We are not born physically as God's children. We're born physically as rebels against God. No, we're reborn as God's children through the power of the gospel, which John's going to talk about in just a few minutes in verses 4, 5, and 6. But at this point... Boy, he's reminding these early Christians, and he's reminding us that, that we are God's children. We already, right now, are God's children. Now, the world doesn't get that. The, wor the world doesn't recognize our true nature. The world doesn't recognize our true parentage. But that's because the world didn't recognize Jesus. But he wants them to know we really are children of God, through the gospel. And that means, verse 2, that when Jesus, the Son of God, appears at the end of history, when we see him face to face, we are going to be made like him. We are going to be perfectly conformed as children of God to the image of the Son of God, his only Son. Jesus Christ. And, and, and John points out then here in these, in these opening verses that, that that family resemblance, that family image, well, it's already begun now. 
And John assures us that the likeness, the, the, the family resemblance will be perfectly completed on the last day. That's our destination. That's, that's where we're headed. Not just a place. We often talk about going to heaven. But, but, but that's not really actually what, what John is focusing on here. He's not so much focusing on a place. He's focusing on a relationship. We're going to be like him. We're going to be in perfect intimacy and fellowship with God because we are like, finally, we are finally like the Son who has always been and always will be in perfect intimacy and fellowship with the Father. It doesn't mean we're going to look like Jesus physically. I think we're going to look... Well, some of, this won't, some of you won't find this good news, but I think you're basically going to continue to be recognizable. I think you're going to kind of look like you look now. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe a slightly improved version. You know, no frailties, no weakness, but I mean, they recognize Jesus. And so we're going to recognize each other. So if you were hoping for, I don't know, the Christy Brinkley body or something, I mean, I, I just, I, I don't think that's what's in view here. Not, not so much to look like physically someone. No, we're going to be like him. We're going to be like him. And so we are going to be in perfect fellowship and intimacy with the Father. And so the conclusion John draws from this is that if you know this is where you're headed, intimacy in the presence of God God himself, then you don't wait for it. You start getting ready now. You begin to purify yourself now, even as he is pure. I mean, think about this. Think about what John's doing here. Think about, I don't know, the, the greatest vacation you ever took. You know, maybe, maybe you were taking a, a vacation down in Mexico or, or Hawaii or over to Italy, Europe somewhere, or maybe it was the South Seas. I don't know. Just, just kind of think of the greatest vacation you've ever taken, or maybe you haven't taken one yet. So imagine the greatest vacation that you can, Right? You don't wake up the day you depart and start to pack. For for a vacation that big? Uh Uh-uh. No, you start preparing for that way in advance. You know, you, you you might try to learn a few words in the native language because you really want to experience the culture. You're going to go out and buy guidebooks, and you're going to begin to study the place that you're going You're going to go out and acquire the appropriate wardrobe so that you can really enjoy the place that you're going for vacation. And if it's a warm and sunny climb and you're from the Northwest, you might even try to work on a base tan so you don't get totally fried, right? You prepare, and and it, it actually might take months to really prepare for this big vacation. Now, now Christian, if anticipation of a big vacation can affect our behavior now. Shouldn't anticipation of Christ's return and being with him and in intimacy with him forever, shouldn't that affect us even more now? Of course it should. Of course it should. John says the way we prepare, the way we anticipate that great day is by purifying ourselves. Now, now, certainly, what, what does that mean? Well, in, in, right here, at this point in the verse, I mean, he is thinking about moral contamination. He's, he's thinking about saying no to sin. Now, now, of course, Jesus Christ has already purified us. If, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 
then you have been made pure positionally in him. You have been sanctified fully and completely. You are holy. But, Christian, if you're like me, you do continue to sin. And so even though there's a completed aspect to our having been purified, there is also an ongoing aspect to our sanctification. We are being purified even as we've already been made pure. And, and we have a role in this. We, we can't do it without the Holy Spirit. We don't, we don't, we don't purify ourselves as, as if, like, he saved us and now it's up to us to clean ourselves up. But, but we do have a role in this. We, we say no to sin. We, we identify what is it in our lives that is morally contaminating? What is it in our lives that if we showed up with it in our luggage, you know, disembarking from the train into heaven, and they, and they found it in the luggage, you know, it, it would be shameful. We wouldn't want it there. So, so part of this purifying ourselves is, is saying no to things, getting rid of things in our lives. But of course, part of purifying ourselves isn't just that negative no, it's also saying yes to the life of heaven. And what is the life of heaven? The life of heaven is the life of love. It, it, is, it is a life of self-sacrificing love for others, because we have been so well loved by the Lord. I, I don't need to love myself in that sense anymore. I don't need to manipulate you into loving me, because the Lord has loved me. And so now I am free to give myself, to give myself to this life of love, to, to, to serve you, to serve even people that maybe don't want my service, that don't want my love. Christian, what would that look like for you practically this week? What what would it look like maybe just to identify one thing in your life that you realize, I don't want this in the luggage. This would be embarrassing. This would be shameful if I showed up at the final destination with this still in the luggage. What would it look like to practically begin to just say no to that? But then remember, you can't just say no. You also have to say yes, right? Lesser loves, unworthy loves, loves for for our lusts, for our idols, for our greed. Those don't just go away. They have to be expelled by a greater love. So what does it look like in your life just practically this week to say yes to that greater love, to to begin to live out the, 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 the life of heaven? here on earth, because you can't wait to get there. You already want to begin to to don the wardrobe. You already want to begin to to live out the the patterns and the habits and the the lifestyle of heaven. I I think sometimes uh, we, we get tripped up here because we think the lifestyle of heaven is leisure. I don't think so. I think the lifestyle of heaven is, is, is going to be an, an eternity of giving ourselves fully in exactly the way Jesus gave himself, to loving other people. So what would that look like even this week? What would it look like in your family? What would it look like at work? What would it look like towards your neighbors to begin to live as if you were really genuinely anticipating that great day? 
You couldn't wait to get there. And so you're going to start getting ready now. That's what John's calling us to. Now, as Christians, of course, we need to remember that he starts, I mean, he ends there in verse 3 of us purifying ourselves, but where he starts is the magnitude, the greatness of the love of God. You'll make no progress in saying no to sin and yes to love if you haven't first, Christian, grasped just how much God loves you. You are children of God. If you are in Christ, you are children of God. You're, you're not servants. I, I know the New Testament often calls us servants, and, and that's true, and that gets at a real aspect of our identity. But, but when, when John talks about it here, when Paul talks about us being children, what he has in mind is children, not servants. What, what's wrong with servants? Well, servants have no enduring place in the family. They, they could be sold. They, they have no certain inheritance. When the New Testament stresses that, that we are children of God, it's wanting to stress that, that certainty that we have. You have an enduring place in the family. Christian, you must start there and then live like it. Not as people who are trying to earn God's love, but as people who are already deeply secure in God's love. If you know where you're going, then you want to get ready. Second, if you know where you've been. So if you know where you're going and you know where you've been, well, if you know where you've been, then John says you don't want to go back. If you know where you've been, then you do not want to go back. Look at verse 4 of chapter 3. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. John now turns in this next section from Christ's second appearing, his second coming, and now he looks back to Christ's first appearing. You see, you see it's, in, it's, it's all in the past tense now. He appeared. He appeared. And he, and he wants to point out two things. When, when Christ came the first time, he came to take away sin. That's what he says there in verse 5. He came to take away our sins. And then second, he came to destroy the devil's works. That's verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared, past tense, was to destroy the devil's works. Well, so what is, verse 5, what is this sin that, that Jesus took away? I think when you hear the word sin, probably all sorts of specific things pop into your mind. But John defines it for us. He tells us what he's thinking about in verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. John's doing something significant here. Defining it this way. John is looking past that specific act, that specific deed that pops into your head, that pops into my head whenever I think about sin. And he's, he's looking past that deed, that thought, that word. He's looking past it to the heart, the heart that gave rise to the specific sin that comes to mind whenever you think about sin. To be lawless is to reject 
God's authority. To be lawless is, is to be committed to the idea that, that we decide what is right and what is wrong, that, that we are going to be our own lawgivers. And John says quite literally that all of us who sin are lawless. It's not just some people are lawless. Everyone, everyone is lawless. And that's, that's challenging, right? That means that relatively speaking, you could be a pretty good guy. You could be a really nice girl. And yet, because your very nature is to reject God's authority over your life, because your very nature is you want to be in charge of your own life rather than submitted to God, you are lawless, a, a rebel who deserves God's judgment. As we'll say in verse 10, you are a child of the devil. And what does the devil have to do with any of this? Well, this is the second thing that Jesus points to, John, John, uh, that, that John points to. Jesus came to, to take away the devil's work. John points out that the ultimate origin of lawlessness, the ultimate origin of sin, is Satan. It is the devil. He is the one who first rebelled against God's rule. He's the one who tempted and deceived our first parents, Adam and Eve, to do the same. He is, as John says there uh, in, in verse, verse 8, he has been sinning from the beginning. That is, from the beginning of, of recorded history, from the beginning of his devilish career, he has been sinning. He was the first to rebel. And his, his works, and Ivy translated, translates the word work there at the end of verse 8 in the singular. It's actually the plural. Destroy the devil's works. His works are temptation, affliction, and deception. And he uses all three to pull us down, to tempt us to fall into the same lawless life that he has been doing from the beginning. The result, John says, is that human sin reflects the character of diabolical sin. We cannot say that the devil made me do it. No, instead, when fallen, unredeemed human beings sin, what we must say, what we must confess is, like father, like son, like father, like daughter, our sin, our sinfulness reflects the very character of Satan himself. And friends, this is where we have all been, past tense. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is where you still are, in rebellion against God, reflecting the lawless character of Satan himself. Now, now perhaps talk of a, of a supernatural, malevolent being strikes you as impossibly medieval, and surely modern people don't, don't think that way anymore. Whitaker Chambers observed a half century ago that when the age of reason began, the devil went underground to make men think he doesn't exist. You see, a far more successful strategy than pitchfork and horns, which is dancing on a mountaintop, you know, a far more successful strategy of Satan these past 200 years 
has been to get men and women to believe he doesn't even exist. Because if he doesn't exist, well, then God probably doesn't either. And all that's left is human reason. And so what happens? Human reason, without being subject to the authority of God, is lawlessness. And lawlessness then becomes enshrined as the highest good, the best thing we can pursue. Friend, make no mistake, the devil is real, and so is your rebellion. And judgment is what both deserve. And this, this judgment, John says, is exactly why Jesus Christ came the first time. Not to judge us, but to take away our sins and to destroy the devil's works. And how did he do that? He did it through the sacrifice of his own righteous life. As John points out there, in him there is no sin. Here then was someone who who could offer his life as a sacrifice, as as a substitute for our lives, bearing our punishment taking the judgment that we deserve, bearing it on the cross, and exhausting that punishment there until it could be said truly by Jesus, it is finished. The punishment has been paid. It has been meted out. It has been exhausted. And God is no longer angry at those who are in Christ who put their faith in him and so know the forgiveness that he offers. But note too here that it's not just forgiveness John's talking about. It's not just that we're forgiven. We're we're given a new nature. Through the gospel, we are born again. This is why John can say there in in verse 6, no one who lives in him, that is in Christ, keeps on sinning. We are given a new nature. Yes, we're forgiven of all of our sins, and then we're not left to our own devices. We are given a new nature, a new life. Paul will talk about the same thing in Romans chapter 5, verse 21, when he says, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace reigns through righteousness and leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, to be alive in Christ through the gospel is to be done with the reign of sin and Satan. A new principle is is alive and at work in the Christian. A principle, a life that is utterly incompatible with sin and Satan's power. Now, friends, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, this is what we're inviting you to. This is what we actually are calling you to. We're not calling you to a set of rules. We're not calling you to moralism. We're not calling you to religion. We're calling you, we're inviting you to freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from Satan's power. We're we're, we're inviting you to a new life, a life whose orientation, a life whose controlling principle is the life of God himself, the God who is love. And if you're not a Christian, today is the day. Today is that that has been brought home to me this week As, as, as a young man lost his life. You don't know how many days you have. Today could be your last day. 
You could be feeling totally healthy, totally secure. But, but friend, you don't know. Today is the day to turn away from your sin, to turn to Christ and to know this new life that will not end. If you would like to know more about that, I encourage you to talk to the person you came with. But if you didn't come with anybody, I'm standing at the door in the back. I would love to talk to you about this, about how you could know this new life. Now, if you are a Christian, these are hard words. Does, does this mean that you, Christian, don't sin anymore? Yeah, well, I, from the looks of most of your faces, you know it doesn't mean that. All right, then does it mean that if you do sin, you're not a Christian after all? Some people have taught that over the years. But that's not what John is saying. John is actually being very careful with the tenses of the verbs that he uses throughout this section. And, and the NIV truly tries to pick up those tenses uh, in, in the phrases, keeps on sinning, continues to sin, goes on sinning. John is not talking about specific acts of sin. He's talking about a life that is characterized by sin. Christ's work to take away our sin and to free us from Satan's power does not mean that we never commit another sin again. It does not even mean that we don't have particular weaknesses, particular besetting sins. What it means is that we have been given a new nature. We have been given a new life in Christ that is incompatible with and is at war with sin. Habitual, characteristic sin. As one Bible commentator put it, although the believer sometimes sins, yet not sin, but opposition to sin is the ruling principle of his life. If you are a Christian, this is the ruling principle of your life, opposition to sin. We are now, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, at war with sin. And though we will often fall to sin's onslaught, if you are a believer in Christ, you never once sue for peace. The battle goes on because your orientation is now in Christ an orientation to life. And therefore, it is an orientation that is opposed to sin. We don't want to go back to where we were, fast bound in sin and nature's night, as Wesley put it. And indeed, we cannot. For as Wesley said in a verse that we never sing, for Anne can it be, I feel the life his wounds impart. I feel the Savior in my heart. We have been given a new life, a new nature. And though we will sin, we never go back to where we were. If you know where you've been, you don't want to go back. And it's that truth, that experience, that leads John to his conclusion. All right, so remember what, what, what I've laid out. If we know where we're going, and we know where we've been, then third... We know who, not where, who we are. We know who we are because it is God's life at work in us. Look at verse 9. No one who is born of God 
will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Where we're headed, where we've been as Christians, is is intimately tied up with, with this idea that John introduces here of being born of God, being born again. If you're a Christian, you've been born again. You have been born of God. That is why you're headed to glory. Not because of what you have done, but because your citizenship as a child of God is where God is. It's in heaven. That's why you're going where you're going. It's also why even now you don't want to go back to a life of sin. Because it is God's life that is at work in us, and his life is incompatible with sin. John says that God's seed remains in us there in verse 9. It's a strange phrase. What is that seed? Well, Mormonism teaches all sorts of heresies concerning that. And and honestly, I find them so ridiculous, I'm not going to spend a moment addressing them. But if you'd like to talk about that more, I'm happy to. People that take the text seriously, some have suggested that this seed is the word of the gospel, uh, which John said back in chapter 2, verse 24 remains in us, that the seed that gives life is the word, the gospel message itself, and that message remains in us. Others point to the Holy Spirit, the the, the anointing that we've received, and and actually John said back in chapter 2, verse 27, just three verses after talking about the word, that the Spirit remains in us. So people point to both word and spirit, and as you're going to get used to with me, I think it's probably both. Because I don't think the Bible ever separates word from spirit. Word and spirit always go together. What is clear is that the seed is the principle, the the, the source, the the very germinating power of life itself. And it is God's life that has been given to believers. It's God's life that has caused us to be born again. It is God's life that that has caused us to come alive with life, a life that is characterized not by Satan's disobedience. That's that's when we were resembling that, that natural father that gave us birth. No, a life that is characterized by Christ's obedience. Because we have a new father. We've been given a new birth. John's saying something very profound here. When we become Christians, there is a radical, a profound, and inward spiritual transformation of us. And it is so radical that really birth is the only way to describe it. A new life begins in us that inexorably, irresistibly grows toward holiness and purity. Like a young seedling. Many of you, like like us, you're, you're about to to, to plant seeds out, out in your garden. I mean, it's spring, it's beginning to warm up, you're going you're to plant seeds. What are those seedlings going to do? It doesn't matter kind of which direction you put the seed in under the ground. It doesn't matter if, 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 the, if the part that begins to, to grow begins to grow downward because you put the seed in the wrong way. No, inexorably, that little seedling, it's going to grow up. It's going to grow up toward the sunshine. 
gospel. So it is with a Christian. The life of the Christian grows with a powerful internal pressure toward the Son of God. This isn't just something that happens with saints and really deeply religious people. It is a fundamental characteristic of every genuine Christian. The life we've been given doesn't grow and develop into any other sort of life. Now, there may be lots of variety, just like in human life, right? We've got redheads here and brown hair and black hair. We've got blue eyes. We've got people with lots of muscles and people with not so many muscles. You know, tall people, short people, lots of variety. But you know, every human fetus in the womb grows inexorably into a human baby. Never never actually turns into a dog. Never ever like somehow like something goes wrong and 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 mom gives birth to a hamster. No, when when that new life when when that egg is fertilized, it's only going to grow into one thing. A human baby. And when that human baby is born, that human baby is going to grow a human baby is going to grow up into an adult and never into anything else. It's exactly the same with the new life in Christ. The new life in Christ grows inexorably into the image of Christ himself. This is why John can say so plainly in verse 10, we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. And how do we know? We know just by observing the overall character of their lives. We get this. We get this in human experience. You know, a, a pointer, talking about dogs now, a pointer can't help but point. A retriever can't help but retrieve. One of those shepherds, you guys ever watch those shepherding trials, you know, um, the, the, uh, I forget what kind of, the, 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 the collies, you know, the, board, the border collies. Man, border collies, border collies herd. If they don't have sheep, they'll herd kids. I, I, I'm that, that, it's, it's in their nature. This is what they do. We see it in our own kids, right? Our kids live out the traits and characteristics that we passed on to them. It's not that they're slaves to those traits, but it's in their nature. They come by it honest. And so Jesus says, you know a tree by its fruit. This is a principle of the universe, and it applies spiritually. The children of the devil resemble the devil like father, like son. The children of God look and act and sound like God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ. They aren't lawless, but they do what is right, John says. They aren't characterized by the devil's work. They're characterized by the Spirit's work. Their lives are lives of love because quite simply, The children resemble the father like father, like son, like father, like daughter. The purity of the spiritual bloodline shows itself in the purity of the life. Not perfectly, not perfectly yet, but undeniably and recognizably from God. Christian, this is who you are. This is 
who you are. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And so today, we want to be like him. Let's live with all the joy and anticipation that that day deserves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that you would call us your children, that you would go to such great lengths to make us your children, that you would share your very life with us at the cost of your son's death. But Father, we pray that we would not put our confidence in some decision that we made a long time ago. We pray that our confidence would not be in a prayer that we prayed or, or even a baptism that we experienced. Father, we pray that our confidence would be in the presence of your life in our lives today. And we pray that that life would grow, that it would grow up, that it would grow strong, so that all who observe us would know who we belong to, whose children we are, and that they would desire to become your children as well. This is our prayer, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.